Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Hey, and thanks for listening in to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined by author and activist Sarah Jackson. Hello. Good morning. Well, good morning, and thanks for your time. It's uh, great to have you today. So for our listeners, Sarah Jackson is the founder and executive director of Casa de Paz, a hospitality home in Denver, Colorado, that has hosted more than 3,000 immigrant guests uh, from 73 nations, Casa's family of more than 2,000 volunteers, ministers to immigrants and families separated by detention and visits, or I'm sorry, with visits, meals, shelter, transportation, emotional support through the arduous experience of immigration detention, one simple act of love at a time. So um, for our listeners, I think this was in your book too, Sarah. I was trying to explain what Casa de Paz is to my wife, and I'm like, it's a Ronald, it's like Ronald McDonald House, and you have that in your book, right? I do. It's exactly what I say. It's like the Ronald McDonald house, but for families separated by ICE immigrant detention centers. Yeah, that was that was fun. So, uh, Sarah, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, if you would, kind of what kind of brought you to Casa de Paz, that kind of that sort of thing. Yeah, actually, about 10 or 11 years ago, I had no concept of immigrant detention centers. It was not even a blip on my radar. I was living in Colorado Springs at the time, and I was working at a church. And I was the senior pastor's assistant. That was my job. I would go into the office and do whatever he needed me to do that day. And one morning, I went to the office, and I opened up his email and started going through it. That was one of my jobs, was to read his emails and respond to them for him. And now, as an adult, I look back and I laugh because... I think that is truly heaven on earth to have someone go through your emails and respond to them for you. Wouldn't that be amazing? (laughs) So anyways, I'm at the office going through the emails and our pastor received an invitation from Catholic Charities. And it was an invitation to go down to the Mexico-Arizona border to learn more about immigration-related issues. And specifically, as people of faith, what is our response? when immigrants come to the country that we live in. What does our faith tradition teach us? So I read through the email, looked at the dates of the trip, looked at his calendar, realized that there was a conflict he wouldn't be able to attend. So I was responding to the email and I was, thank you so much, really appreciate it, but he's unable to attend. I was just about to hit send. And then at the very, very bottom of the email, I saw some words pop out. And they were all expenses paid trip to Mexico. Yeah. (laughs) And that caught my attention. And I don't mean to be flippant about the immigration issue, but really what drew me in was that this was a free trip to Mexico. And so I thought, well, what if I go on that trip instead? And I'll, you know, I'll go down there, I'll learn, I'll immerse myself, but then I'll come back and report and go on with my daily life. Um... So anyways, Catholic Charities took the bait. They said, sure, come on down. 
go ahead. And I went down there and, you know, it was it was a it was an adventure in the sense that I went somewhere that I had never been before. Yeah. But it was the one of the hardest trips of my life because for the first time in my life, I met people who were suffering because of the United States' immigration policies. And it was a really interesting experience because every single time that I met somebody there who was telling me their story, whether they had just been deported um, and separated from their families, or they were coming to the United States seeking safety in the form of asylum, every single individual that I met reminded me of my family. And I kept thinking, yeah. gosh, if this was my mom or my dad or my brother or my sister, is this how I would want them to be treated? And every single time the answer was no, absolutely not. Yeah. We can do better. And so I came back from that trip, um, my eyes opened and my spirit sort of stirred to understanding that there was probably a part that I could play in helping to reunite families that had been separated by detention and that's how it all started. <laughs> Great. I know for me, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, Borderlinks. Yes, actually, they with partner with what? the group that we went down there with. Oh, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I was wondering about that. I know I did a trip with them back in 2012, 2011, something like that. And I know that was a similar experience that I had when I met um, a young father like me. And I thought about... Like my daughter had just been born, so it must have been, it must have been 2012. I want to say, <laughs> whenever my daughter. Was oh, uh oh! Don't don't let anyone hear this podcast. <laughs> um, uh, she's eight. Uh, so 2012, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's the same year that I started the casa. So it would be it would be 2012 because we're yeah. eight years old too. <laughs> um, but I had that same thought. Like, I met him at a at a facility on the south, you know, the Mexican side of the border, and I had that same thought, like, man, this guy is, he, I remember he, had, I think he has like a, a, I think he had a daughter in California, and then his family was in Mexico, and I, and it pained me to think, like, he was really never going to be able to see, he had to choose, basically, which family he was going to see uh, for the rest of his life, or at least a long period of life, and it, it really kind of broke my heart. Um but let's let's save kind of custody pause here for a little bit. But but it, it sounds like uh, reading your book, and we'll talk more about that here in a second. Um, it's really kind of been a spiritual journey this process for you. So talk a little bit, if you would, kind of what it meant to be a Christian in the past, and how this whole experience has kind of changed you, if you, if you don't mind. I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian home, and just to kind of give you a snapshot into a daily life of Sarah as a 10-year-old kid growing up in 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 Bastrop, Texas. I was going to say Austin, but then I'm like, no, I actually grew up in Bastrop, but nobody really knows Bastrop. But it was Bastrop, yeah. Texas, a really small town in Texas. Um, we would make the journey into town, into Austin, you know, once a week. And on the way to, to town, we would listen to Rush Limbaugh. Yeah. And yeah. I remember very specifically that if we were to interrupt Rush Limbaugh, we would get a timeout. So we would Love be it. driving to Austin. My mom would put it on the radio. And if we said anything while he was speaking, we would get a timeout. So what I grew up listening to were these phrases like illegals and they're mm -hmm. stealing our jobs and they're yep. breaking the law and they're criminals and kick them out, build the wall higher. That's what I knew. 
Yeah. And also as a Christian, I grew up hearing that that um, that verse, give unto Caesar what is due to Caesar, right? So in my yeah. mind, I believed firmly in the rule of law. Yep. Not really being exposed much to this concept of, well, some laws are unjust and some laws yeah. do not treat people fairly. And I'm very grateful to say that my family has definitely made a very beautiful journey to what I believe more fully understanding God's love and God's law, right? God tells us, yeah. here's the two yeah. best commandments. One, love me with all your heart and your soul and your mind. But the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself, right? Like that conversation wasn't had with me as a child. But yeah. as an adult, I started contemplating that. It was after my trip to the border, to be honest with you, because I came back and I knew what I had just witnessed was not okay. Yeah. But I was still thinking, but what if they, they're breaking the law, you know? But I firmly, I very firmly believe that I experienced a miracle because one morning I woke up. I'm a very stubborn person. Anyone who knows me knows I'm, my middle name should have been stubborn. <laughs> and, and I was still having a hard time reconciling, give unto Caesar and then love the Lord your God and love your neighbor, right? It was very yeah. hard for me to come to terms with that. But one morning I woke up and it just made sense to me. It was this revelation like I had never had before. And I realized, oh my gosh, last night I was hungry and I found food to eat. I was thirsty and I found something to drink. I was cold, so I found a blanket to sleep with, you know? And if I do that for myself, those are ways that I'm loving myself, right? I have to do that for my neighbor. It's not optional as a Christian. It's yeah. not if they're documented. It's not if they came the legal way. It's you got to do it, you know? Yeah. And so I started, and then I, I started realizing after getting that sort of, that scripture becoming alive, gosh, if those are the only two commands that I try to follow the rest of my life, that's, it. that's enough. Like yeah. that really is enough because I'm never going to get them both like perfect, mm -hmm. you know? So that's what I'm going to focus on. And that's when I started understanding, well, the, the act, actually the more important law is to love others the way that we love ourselves and the way that we want um, our, our family and our friends to be treated. But it was not an overnight thing, right? Like I went to the border and it did take about a good year for me to process, to reflect, to ask questions that I thought might be embarrassing or a little yeah. bit inflammatory. But I, I met folks on that trip, including I met the first Christian who was gay and not ashamed to be gay. She was openly gay. And I was yeah. like, what is happening? That was the first time I had ever met yeah. a gay Christian who was proud of how God created her to be. Um, but she ended up, her name is Claire, and she ended up being a confidant of mine and somebody that I could just have these really intense and liberating and scary yeah. conversations with. Yeah, I, I appreciate what you're saying about uh, having space to ask questions like that. And I think for folks who may not have grown up in conservative contexts, uh, may not be able to appreciate kind of what you're describing about really wrestling with scripture uh, because it's the Bible is, has such preeminence uh, 
in our context, or at least those kind of contexts, that you really have to wrestle and grapple with what are these texts and how do I, how am I going to understand these texts in, in light of this new information? Yep. And, and well, being okay to lean in there and not afraid of being uncomfortable. Yeah. What has been a spiritual practice you developed that has been meaningful to you? Well, every day I have now started my gratitude journal. And I, and, and it's the most random gratitude journal in the world. It is, I open up the book, my, my journal, and I just, the first three things that pop into my mind, I write down that I'm grateful for. And it's kind of fun to see the recurring people or things that keep popping up. (laughs) Um, There, there are some days where it's totally random. It'll be like toothpaste and sunlight and my table yeah and then there will be other days where it will be like my mom and my dad and my my fam, my brother and sister you know but i think that being aware of the gifts that i have been given mm. and the blessings that i have in my life are that's one of the best ways that i and i start off my day like that it's before i even well most of the days before i even get out of bed um, that, gosh, we don't have a lot of time on earth, right? We just don't. Mm-hmm. And to be appreciative of what we have and to not feel guilty about what we've been given, but to also use that as a motivator to want other people to experience the same kind of happiness and gratitude in their life. Um, it's one of the things I just started actually post-COVID, my gratitude journal, and I love it. It's oh. one of my favorite parts of my life now. Yeah, I, I imagine that'd be helpful, especially in this time. I I almost want to draw attention to what you said there about ingratitude, wanting for others to have what you have. And I, I think that's, as I understand your work, really reflected here. And I, I feel like that's so countercultural in a way. In American culture, it's kind of like, I'm going to get what I want to get for me and me alone, right? Well... I mean, for me personally, if I feel happy and I feel grateful and I feel appreciative or whatever it is that I'm feeling and I love other people in my life, whether that's my family or my friends or whoever, then it just sort of seems natural that I'd also want them to feel that way. (laughs) You know, like if, if, if you know how it can feel to feel so good because you're, for example, with my family. I, my parents actually lived in Germany for about five years. My dad got a job there and they moved overseas and they stayed there for a few years. And I knew that anytime I really wanted to, I could go over and visit them, right? I'd look for a ticket, I'd find a ticket and I'd go over and visit them. And that felt really right to me to know that at any moment I can go and spend time with my family. And immersing myself with folks who have been separated from their families due to immigrant detention centers, I knew that that wasn't a given, right? That's a privilege. That's something that I did nothing to deserve. But I know now literally thousands of people, I know them on a case-by-case basis. It's not just a statistic. I mean, these are folks that have come, stayed in my home after they've been released from detention that they do not have that same privilege. And I will be honest, there is a sense of, 
I don't know if maybe guilt is a little bit of that word that I'm looking for. Like, yeah. well, if I have it and they don't, should I really have it? You know, there's that that I have to wrestle with. But I think for me, what's important is that understanding that I do have that ability and that others don't. And what can I do to make sure that others have that thing that I also have? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your book and kind of the story uh, about it. So the book is The House That Love Built, Why I Opened My Door to Immigrants and How We Found Hope Beyond a Broken System. So it's kind of the story of Cassidy Day Paz and how this came to be. Um, so I recommend for folks who really want to hear or see, read the background, uh, buy the book. It's a good story and it tells more about how this came to be. And, but for the sake of time and just for a little introduction, like what's the kind of the, the mission of Cassidy Paws, how to get started, that kind of, what was the, the mission behind it? For the, after my trip to the border, I knew what I had seen was families being separated that wanted to be together again. And so after I came back to Colorado, I started understanding, oh my gosh, there's actually an immigrant detention center in Aurora. Oh my gosh, that detention center is separating parents from children. Oh my gosh, like what is happening? You know, it was a complete shock to my system. And, and so what I ended up doing is moving up to Denver so that I could be very close to the detention center. I moved literally across the street from the immigrant detention center. And there were these monthly protests that I would go and be part of slash prayer vigils, however you mm -hmm. chose to look at it, protest or prayer vigil. And at one of the protests slash prayer vigils, um, I heard somebody say the name El Refugio. And I thought to myself, what, what's El Refugio? So I went online after the protest and I looked it up and it was a hospitality home in Georgia. And it was located about an hour, uh, I'm sorry, a mile away from the immigrant detention center. And it operated like a Ronald McDonald home. So when families came in from out of town to visit their family who was locked up in that detention center, they could stay at El Refugio for free. It wouldn't cost them anything. Yeah. And I knew right away, that is what I wanna do for two reasons. One, it has everything to do with creating a space so that families can be reunited and see each other. And then number two, I thought, this is gonna be so easy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All I have to do is get a house and let people stay with me. <laughs> and at the end of the day, it is very simple. It is not complicated. Okay, yes, yeah. eight years later, now that we've had thousands of volunteers and thousands of guests, yes, there is a lot of little pieces to the puzzle. Yeah. But really, at the core of what we do is we create an opportunity so that families can be reunited and eight years ago that looked like a one-bedroom apartment right across the street from the detention center that i opened up so that families driving in from out of town would have a safe place to rest while they were visiting their mom or their dad or their son or their daughter whoever it was but then an interesting thing started happening and and we go into it actually it's one of my favorite um favorite chap uh, sections of the book it's um mm -hmm. It's uh, this moment where I get a call from one of the guards at the ICE detention center. Yeah. And it was a blizzardy, snowy day. It was really cold outside. And being from Texas, I hate cold weather. So I saw that it was snowing and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna be inside for at least a week. You know, that's it. I'm not going outside. Well, I get a call from the guard and I pick up my phone and, and he's like, hey, 
I work over at Geo right across the street from you and um, I'm releasing a young woman who came to the United States seeking asylum. She's from Guatemala. She crossed uh, the border in summertime. So she's wearing a t-shirt and jeans. That's all she's wearing. And there's a blizzard outside. Mm. Uh, And her family lives in Utah. And she doesn't have anyone here who can pick her up. Do you think that you could come pick her up and help her get to Utah? And, you know, that was a shock because I was not expecting an ICE officer to call me and tell me that somebody was being released from an immigrant detention center that needed help getting to their final destination. But it was a call that was very much um, perfect in every sense of the way because I was across the street right i i didn't even have to get in my car to go pick her up i just had to make a five minute walk across the street and i walked over there i i got in i walked inside the lobby and i saw her sitting there i introduced myself to her very awkwardly like how do you how do you tell someone like hey i'm a complete stranger come to my house (laughs) you know like and i i it was there was a blizzard and i remember thinking oh like a logical thing would be to say i have a coat at my house for you so i like lured her in with a coat i'm like i have a coat um, so we walked out and um you know she was very grateful i could tell right away she was like thank you you know because all she needed was a little bit of help to transition from the detention center to her family in utah you know a phone call to call her family so they could look for a, a bus ticket maybe a warm meal a place to stay and then a ride to the bus station you know no- nothing elaborate she just needed a little bit of attention um, and so we, we leave the lobby. I'll never forget this. We leave the lobby. We're in Aurora, right? So if yeah. any of the folks listening know Aurora, it's not the most beautiful part of Colorado, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, we walk out, we get about 10 feet outside of the detention center. And then she just stops in her tracks. And I'm like, Oh, she's scared she's gonna go back inside like she doesn't trust me like this is not going well so I I just stopped with her you know I just stopped and then she looked around and she said this is the most beautiful place I've ever seen and I I was glad to hear that she you know she was happy and appreciated what she was looking at and and then we got over to the apartment and I looked for a coat for her, found something warm. We had some, it was cold, so we had probably had some soup, something warm. Um, yeah. We called her family to let her know that she was free and that she needed to look for a bus ticket to get home. Her family bought her a bus ticket. She spent the night. The next morning as we were getting ready to go to the bus station, we're walking out of the uh, apartment and she she looked at the... Um, at the awning and on the awning there was a a, a, the United States flag just sort of like blowing in the wind and she just stopped she's like oh my goodness please can we take a picture can you please take my picture so I took a picture of her in that snowy you know scene and the flag behind her and she was just so proud to finally have made it to the United States and found safety here um, because what she had escaped from was uh, deadly experience and so wow. um, I remember at the end of that ex- at the end of that day reflecting and thinking wow what did what did what just happened you know somebody just stayed at my house and now she's not here but she's on her way to go to her family like what what just happened but I knew yeah. that it was 
the right thing that should have happened, right? Because without a place like Casa de Paz for her to go to, she would have been on the streets. Yeah. yeah. Nowhere to go. No, no understanding, right, of do I go right, do I go left, do I go forward, backwards? Yeah, she didn't blizzard. really speak any English, first time in the United States, and that's how our government treats people. Yeah. And I don't think that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an amazing story. And one of the fun things that I, I read in the book um, that I, I want to hear more about, because I, I know from experience kind of how hard it is to fund a nonprofit, uh, talk about how volleyball fits into this. So random, huh? Yeah. About about six months into running Casa de Paz, which again, I never thought it would be a nonprofit. I just thought it would be me opening up my home. Mm-hmm. Never imagined in a million years it would actually be a nonprofit. Um, so about six months into running the uh, opening up my home, I ran out of money completely. Had not even a pe- well, I had a penny. Actually, I remember going into my bank account online and I had two pennies. I didn't even have a nickel. I had two pennies yeah. to my name. And rent was coming up. And I'm like, great, what am I going to do? You know? And I, I was telling my friend, I have to pay rent. I don't have any money. I don't know if I can do this. I think I might just quit. I think I might just say A for effort, but I can't do it. You know? Yeah. Um, and he said, no, 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 no. You can't just quit. Like, you're the only, not, you're the only person in Colorado doing this. You, nobody else is going to open up their home for families or for immigrants released. You've got to do it figure it out and I'm like oh okay what do I do and then he said well what else makes you happy obviously reuniting families is fulfilling for you but what else do you like to do and and immediately I said oh volleyball I love to play volleyball and he said this is what you need to do you need to start a volleyball league and then you need to donate whatever profit you make from that league to the casa so that you can pay your rent and then you'll be able to keep going and I thought that is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Like, why would anyone choose a rinky-dink yeah. volleyball league over, you know, there's other well-established leagues in Denver. Right. Um, but, sad to say, he was right. <laughs> uh, I started Volleyball Internacional about a year after the CASA, and we started off with six teams registered in the small league, and it was very, very, very fun. It was a family-like feel. We were very mm-hmm. connected to one another. We became friends very quickly. And at the end of the season, we had enough money to be able to pay the rent of the Casa, which was phenomenal. And then mm-hmm. at the end of that season, the players wanted to play again, and they came back for more. And then instead of six teams, we had seven teams the next season. And then we played again, and then we had 10 teams. And now I just ran the numbers for our current season. We have 60 teams playing in our volleyball wow. league. Yeah. Wow. And it obviously it's a volleyball league, so people go there to have fun and play volleyball and meet new yeah. friends and de-stress after a long day of work. But... Uh, when they step foot on the court, it's not just volleyball. They're also playing to keep families together. And I think that is a huge reason why people initially chose us and why people keep coming back to play. Yeah, that's really incredible. I know uh, one of my goals pre-COVID in 2020 was to do some kind of like uh, active sports league. And I was, I was looking into volleyball. So uh, I'm still trying to figure out what that looks like in this world of COVID, but you, y'all are still doing the league, right? Just with masks. 
yep, we're wearing masks, and then we've actually rented out more court space so that there's not as many people in the court at the same time. So we're doing what we can to continue. I mean, we shut down at the very beginning, you know, and... um, and then we've just been able to safely reopen and we're doing things like taking temperatures of volleyball players before they come in and mm-hmm. sanitizing in between games. So it's costing us a little bit more now to play, but we're, uh, we're still able to make uh, enough money to pay our rent again. Yeah. Well, 60 teams is really, that's incredible. Um, you've, you've kind of mentioned them already in this conversation, but I'm curious like what you'd, as you have been on this journey, obviously you've worked with the, I'm guessing like a broad expanse of different people. What are some of the biggest myths you've had to overcome with people about like immigration? I, I know you talked about like, oh, people need to come like legally and we kind of know, or you and I know that that's a myth really in, in many ways. Uh, what are some of those myths that you've had to overcome with people to, in conversations or to help them get on board with this? That one that you just mentioned is a perfect place to start oh well I agree with immigration as long as they come legally and one of the folks that you meet in the book is Winston and he is an asylum seeker from Cameroon Africa and in Africa right in Cameroon Africa right now there is a genocide happening and he was being targeted by the government and had no option but to leave he would either be killed or be put into a prison and tortured for the rest of his life so he fled Cameroon came to the United States took him three months to get to the border of California and Mexico. And then he lawfully presented himself to a border patrol officer and turned himself in and said, my name is Winston. I'm from Cameroon, Africa. I'm asking for asylum. So he followed the law. He did it legally. Uh And our government's response to Winston was to handcuff him, to put him in a for-profit detention center where he was held for over half a year while he was waiting to have his case heard in front of the immigration judge. And I think if, right, immigration can feel overwhelming and daunting, right? But yeah. if we can take like just that one in one example of somebody following the law, doing it the right legal way, and still being put in prison. <laughs> like, yeah. let's talk about that. And the other thing I think too is that I, I don't think that, I mean, I think I could count on, on my hand, on one hand, how many immigrants I've met that said, oh my, it was my dream to come to the United States. Asylum seekers, I should say. Folks yeah, who are fleeing yeah. persecution or violence or, you know. Nobody really grew up thinking, oh, the United States is where I want to end up. But they were home. They loved home. That was what they were familiar with. That was where they went to school. That's where they went to church. That's where they had their families and their friends and their community and their businesses and the food that they loved and the the terrain that they grew up on. And there was a reason why they had to leave. Most folks that I know didn't want to leave. They came here because there was no other option. And my family has a history of immigrating when there was no other option. My grandmother... Yeah, my grandmother is Pol- uh, was born in Poland, and during the Holocaust, when the Nazis invaded Poland, she fled, and she went to, Par- uh, to France, and she resettled there and was able to start a life there, and had it not been for the ability for her, her to flee and go somewhere else, she would not be alive, and I probably wouldn't be here. 
So I think it's important for us to also consider our history in our own personal families and imagine what would happen if they did not have an option to go somewhere else, you know, that um, I think most of us listening right now are probably have some kind of story like that somewhere in our lineage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, reading the book, I'm not sure if it's still happening with COVID, but it seems like church, uh, speaking in churches is something you've done quite often. And if we think about like the broader American Christian church, a big section of it, obviously being evangelical conservative folks who, I mean, have kind of grown up kind of imbibing that, how you talked about at the beginning, like, you know, illegal immigrants, and you come here illegally, all that stuff. I guess this is like a two-part question. Like, A, what's your kind of like, where do you start to kind of break through some of those barriers um, with them? And then what's like your, might be your broader message to the church? Let's just go back to, to our faith and look at what Jesus said. And look at our rich tradition of how we treated the stranger and the foreigner. I mean, there are verses and scripture in New and Old Testament that speak not only to the importance of treating folks with kindness and compassion, but the, um, the how critical it is. I mean, we... We have thrown so far away, I believe, from what it means to be a good neighbor that when we think about locking people up in immigrant detention centers, it just is acceptable, which it should never be. Putting people in prison because they have a concern and and fear for their life, and then our response as a prison is so far from treating people with just with mercy and respect and with dignity. And one of my very favorite verses um, is in Hebrews. And they say, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some of you have shown hospitalities to angels without even knowing it. And to maybe recreate and reimagine ways that we're not just doing it because we are asked to do it because our faith is requiring it of us, but looking at it as an exciting opportunity for us to get to meet people from all over the world and get to know them and hear, you know, how, how are they doing? How, how are you? You know, just basic, 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 simple, simple things, inviting them over for a cup of tea or coffee or a meal. You know, they, they can be things that enrich our lives and not, I'm not saying that we should do it because it's better for us in the end, but for me, opening up my home to thousands of folks has given me such a deeper understanding of life and, what you know to be grateful for so it has been I always say this that Casa de Paz has been a gift to me Uh I am so glad that God trusted me to see this idea and to you know yeah to to have the idea and then to continue to be able to do it eight years later it just still blows me away (laughs) yeah that's great I'm thinking still about like I was just reading this morning like uh 
an an article like the QAnon is like spreading like wildfire amongst American evangelicals. And as I think about immigration and some of the hostility towards that in many conservative churches, like, what do you think at the end of the day that comes down to it? Is it like a fear? Um, Is that like a scarcity model? I think it's probably both of those. (laughs) I remember when I got back from the border that very first trip, I went to listen to a pastor speaking about immigration and I can't remember anything about the day. I don't even remember who the pastor was except for one of the things that she said. She said, you know, when people say, well, we can't open our borders because our country can't support everyone, right? Yeah. She said, I am operating out of a scarcity mentality. And if I'm operating out of a scarcity mentality, that might mean that I have a scarcity mentality of God. And that is not the kind of God that I want to believe in. I want to believe in a God of abundance. And so when I'm faced with that moment, oh, what if we can't take care of everyone? Or what if everyone can't live here? Uh Take a minute, breathe into that and think, okay, that's a scarcity mindset, right? Okay, you're right. Maybe you individually cannot uh, accompany, right? A thousand people, but if uh, 999, wait, 999 other people offered a little bit to share with their fellow neighbor, then we could do it, you know. So I think it is a scarcity model, and then I or a mentality, and then absolutely there's the the fear of the unknown, the fear of the other, the fear of the what ifs, and I think. At Casa de Paz, we have this really unique opportunity to meet people and to establish a personal connection. So it's not just a statistic in the news or them, right? It's like, wait a second, that is somebody that I know personally now. And I was just talking about this a few days ago that even though I say, for me, you know, the reason I started Casa de Paz was not for political reasons at all. And it's not a political issue at the end of the day to me. It's a personal, it's about a person. It is still going to shape how I vote because I want to look at Winston, right? The the guy that Uh we meet in the book. And I want to look at him and I want to say, who do I think is going to give you a better shot at a happy life in the United States, right? And then it will shape who we vote for and who we support and what businesses we support and which ones we divest from. Actually, it was a huge compliment. Somebody read my book, The House That Love Built, and they wrote a review on Amazon and they said, I want to let you know that I am an evangelical Christian and Mm -hmm. before I read your book, I had actually invested my IRA with Geo Group, which is that for-profit prison that contracts out with ICE to detain immigrants. He said, after I read your book, I divested from Geo and I put my money somewhere else because I just don't, you know, I don't don't believe in that anymore, Um, which was probably a smart move financially too, because um, under this current administration, geo stocks did shoot up, but when this administration is not in place any longer, I think they're going to continue to fall. So he made a good financial decision, <laughs> but I just thought that was a huge honor because it's yeah. uh, it just goes to show that we do have these opportunities on a daily basis to make this world a better place for 
for ourselves, for our families, for our complete strangers that we've never met and will never meet. Um, and it, it's not it's not as difficult as I think we try to make it seem. That's a great example just of that divestment of like little things we can do to make a difference. Uh, there's so many questions more I want to ask you, but I want to honor your time here. So uh, let's take a break after this and come back for our closing questions. But I, I do want to point out like I, I really you mentioned like the scarcity model of God. I think, well, there's there's something there in uh, theology. Uh, we'll have to say that for another one. But um, let's take a break real quick, and we'll come back with some closing questions. Looking for a progressive, inclusive church that allows you to ask questions, explore your faith, and connect with God? Check out Mission Gathering Thornton, a community of Jesus followers dedicated to growing in faith, living whole lives, and seeking justice for the good of all. As an online church with incarnational communities, we're meeting together online and in person with opportunities for you to connect with people across the street and all over the world. So visit us at mgthornton.org, find us on Facebook and YouTube. We'd love to have you be a part of this life-giving community. All right, we're back with uh, author and activist Sarah Jackson. So, Sarah, you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to. So, if you are Pope for a day, what does that day look like for you? Being really careful about what I touch because I wouldn't want to get my white garment dirty. <laughs> That's good. Cleaning you said I could be silly. Yeah, cleaning has got to be a, a well, I, I'll keep this G-rated. That's going to be a bear, right? Cleaning those things. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a theologian or historical Christian figure you want to meet or bring back to life? Yes, my hero is Sophie Scholl. And she is Sophie a war, yeah, she's a war resistor that ended up being killed for spreading pamphlets that alerted wow. Germans to the danger of the rise of Hitler. And she was wow. in her early 20s when she conspired with a group of other young war resistors in Munich, Germany, and it ended up ultimately meaning that she sacrificed her life. And she had no regrets because she knew what she was doing mm -hmm. was the right thing to do. And I, even right now, have chills thinking about her. She's my hero and I, I'm very excited for the day where my soul gets to meet her soul. Awesome. How do you spell her name? S-O-P-H-I-E, Sophie, and then Scholl, S-C-H-O-L-L. -L. Okay, cool. I'll look her up. Yeah, there's a really good movie about her, too, on on YouTube, actually. Oh, good. Check that out, folks. Um, what do you think history will remember this current time and place for? I hope that we can look back on this time in history and look at a defining moment where things changed. Mm. And I think it's right now it feels like it's just this daunting, right? Every day we wake up and here it is again, but there's, it has to, it has to bend towards justice. Like MLK said, yeah. it's got it, got to move there and, and it will. We just, Got to keep doing it. <laughs> Let me ask then this last question. 
um, rather than like, what do you think Christianity will look like in the future? Like what, what do you hope maybe, whether it's five, 10, 500, what do you hope for? I hope that when people see us, when people see Christians, that their first feeling is one of acceptance and one where mm. they they say, gosh, the person that they chose to model their life after was a really amazing man. And I see that they're trying to do that too, instead of that's our great. reputation that we have now. But that's what I hope for. That's great, great. Um, last, and then where can people find out more about you and your work? You can go to our website, www.casadepazcolorado.org. And we're also on Facebook and Instagram. And you can find all of the information that we spoke about. Uh, you can learn how to volunteer, more info about the book, read stories about guests that have stayed with us. It's all there on our website or our social medias. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And a blessing to you and your continued ministry there. Uh, may God's peace be with you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. But hey, before you go, do us a favor. Subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Thanks, and go in peace.